In Matthew 24, 21, Jesus said that there is a tribulation time coming that is worse than anything that this world is ever going to see or worse than anything that has ever happened before. The worst time that there would ever be. It is known as the 70th week of Daniel, weeks and as in weeks of years, which is a very Hebrew thought. It's not an American thought. We don't think in weeks of years. We think in weeks of days. They thought in weeks of years because they were supposed to give the land a rest one year out of seven years. So the 70th week of Daniel is a 70 year period. It's broken up into two parts, three and a half years. The first part, three and a half years. The second part. The second part is called the Great Tribulation. The whole thing is tribulation. But as it continues on, just like things are getting more and more difficult now, as the tribulation period continues on, it's going to become more and more difficult. And we're just getting started now in the book of Revelation. I know it seems like we're in chapter 11. We're about halfway through. Uh, we are just getting started in the mysteries that we find in the book. We've yet to see the beast come out of the sea, the beast come out of the land, the dragon in the book of Revelation, the mystery Babylon and the destruction of mystery Babylon, the mark of the beast, the woman that gives birth to the son that the dragon wants to devour. So many more great things that are ahead of us in the book of Revelation for us to be able to dive into. And I'm really excited to be able to do that with you. Today, we are looking at the two witnesses. Remember, this is, this is a, a parenthetical passage. We've taken a break. We're basically, the book of, of the, this portion of the book of Revelation is opening the seven seals, then, then the blowing of the seven trumpets that come out of the, seven, the seventh seal, and then the pouring of the seven bowl judgments. And every so often there's a pause in the seal being broken or the trumpet being sounded and we get some further information. Well, there was a pause and you remember that there was a mighty angel with a little book in his hand. He was standing with one foot on the ocean and one foot on the ground. And he gave that little book to John, the, the author of the book of John, and told him to eat that little book. And he ate it and it was sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And he was told that he would continue to prophesy. Then we had, that was part of the parentheses, and then we had him given a measuring rod and go and measure the temple, but leave the court of the Gentiles out. And this was our study last week as we talked about the tribulation period temple. There will be a temple built again on the temple mount in Jerusalem. It seems unlikely, I know. If it started tomorrow, it would cause World War III. But who knows what kind of things are going to happen that are gonna allow it to happen. God said Israel would become a nation again. He would bring them back from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and he has done that. And now with the continuation of this parenthetical section, all of a sudden now, we have two witnesses that come on the scene. We're not told much about them, but we just all of a sudden, there they are. There are our two witnesses. But we do get clues as to who these two witnesses are, and what they do is pretty amazing uh, when, you, when you really think about it. And so we pick it up in Revelation 11, verse three. This is after the measuring of the tribulation temple. And he says, I will give power to my two witnesses. Now, all of a sudden today, while I'm reading this, I'm thinking back two studies ago to the large angel with the rainbow that's above its head, whose feet are like fire, 
who is shining. I can't remember the rest of the description on him. And you remember we had a discussion as to some people thinking that he was Jesus and looked like Jesus or God on the throne with the rainbow above his head and Jesus in the early book of Revelation. And I kind of talked about he could be either one of them. And if it was God, you would think that it would say it was God. Well, all of a sudden, when I read verse three, I think immediately, and this is the angel talking. I went back and read it. I just went back and read it unbroken from chapter one, verse 10, all the way through. This is the angel that handed him the little book. This is the one with the rainbow around his head. And I will give power to my two witnesses. So I had said that I don't think that this angel is Jesus. And this is why you probably shouldn't give your opinion when you're teaching, because you get further information and you realize, oh, you know what? It's pretty clear here. This is God speaking. This is Jesus speaking. I will give power to my two witnesses. And he goes on speaking like God. These are not witnesses of the angel. These are witnesses of God. And so the angel is Jesus. And it just reminds me more and more. And I hope I said it. I need to go back and listen to the teaching. I hope I said I lean towards it not being Jesus or I think this isn't Jesus. I hope I didn't get super dogmatic. If so, I need to kick myself. And it's a good reminder with the witnesses and the title of our study today being the mystery revealed that maybe I ought to get not get too dogmatic. Maybe we need to change the thumbnail on YouTube to something other than the mystery revealed because um, we're, we're going to talk about who the two witnesses are. But after seeing this and this clearly giving us a not just a clue, but clearly telling us who that angel is, then maybe we ought to not be dogmatic where we shouldn't be dogmatic because sometimes what we think we know, we don't know. And the problem is, is that we don't know what we don't know. That's the ultimate problem. And when you find out what you didn't know, then you go, oh, if I only knew that back when I said that, I wouldn't have said that. If I only knew what I know now, what I didn't know <laughs> then. <laughs> All right, so he says, I'll give power to my two witnesses. And this reminds me of Acts 8.1, where Jesus said, Terry in Jerusalem, and I will give you power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now, this word for witnesses is an interesting word. It's a word that can be translated and is translated in your Bibles as witness and martyr. It means martyr and it means witness. It means one who would take the witness stand and it means martyrs. And your context is going to help you decide how it ought to be translated. We have a lot of English words like that. My favorite one is desert and dessert. The context is going to tell you everything you need to know there, right? You got to have the context in order to have it. And so that's the same way with witness and martyr. But could it also be that when you are a witness for Christ, you are also a martyr? That when he gives you power to be a witness, he's not just giving you power to be, you know, a one who stands up for Jesus, but power for one for, to be able to die to yourself and live to Christ, which is something that every one of us as Christians are supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be laying down our lives. John the Baptist said he must increase and I must decrease. We're all to be living that way. And so maybe the word really is martyr in the sense Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, then, then deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Paul said in Galatians that uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives in me. We're all martyrs. These guys are martyrs. I will give you power to be martyrs. 
they become martyrs. They're, they're killed for Christ. These guys are also witnesses. They take the witness stand and they speak for Christ. I want my life to represent Jesus in such a way that people see me and see Christ inside of me. You see the hope of glory inside of me. And I also want my life to be consumed for him. Even if I die for old age, let it be that my life is consumed for Christ. Living on a sacrifice, on, on a on an altar, giving a sacrifice. It's just interesting that that's exactly what this word means. Now in Acts 14, seven, it says, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And I pointed that out because here we are in the book of Revelation. The church has been taken out because the bride was not going to go through the wrath or the anger of God. So the bride has been taken out from that. We've done plenty of studies on that so far. But God's not going to leave himself without a witness. And so there's 144,000 from the tribe of Israel, from each of the tribes of Israel, that except Dan, which are, are sealed. And I take it that they go out throughout the world. And these are 144,000 evangelists who are winning people to Christ. We've passed a, a passage in, in Revelation where we saw a great many people who had come out of the great tribulation, assumably martyred for Christ, and they were worshiping him before the throne. Because if you're in the tribulation period, your life is going to be in danger from the catastrophes, the wrath that's happening, and from the persecutions that are taking place. Now, uh, some believe... Let's, let's just take some thoughts about Enoch and uh, about these two witnesses as to who they are. And, and here, I have been dogmatic before and probably will be less dogmatic today because I've been humbled by one little word. These are my two witnesses. Uh, some believe it to be Enoch and Elijah, the uh, two men who never died in the Bible. Genesis 5.24 says, And Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. 2 Kings 2.11 says of Elijah, then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, Enoch is a Gentile. It's before, long before Abraham. Enoch is antediluvian pre-flood and Abraham is after the flood. And so they're, they're not even contemporaries in any way, shape, or form. And Abraham, from him comes the Jewish nation. So you can't have any Jewish people before Abraham. So Enoch is a Gentile. And it seems that these two are Jewish. So Enoch, for me, is a type of the church being taken out before the flood, before the destruction of God's anger came upon the earth, there was a man who walked with God that was taken out before the destruction. If you and I walk with God, we will be taken out before the destruction. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the days of the coming of man. Men will eat and drink, marrying, given in marriage when sudden destruction comes upon them. God took out eight people and saved them before the wrath came. Then Jesus says, same text, Luke 17, then Jesus says, as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Men will be eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage when sudden destruction will come upon them. Again, 
the angels had to take Luke and his family, Lot and his family by the hand. I don't know what Luke was doing in Sodom and Gomorrah way back then. It wasn't even his day. But took Lot by the hand and brought him out, remember? And his wife turned around and looked back. By the way, there is good evidence that they have found the city of Gomorrah today. There's been suggestions in the past that they have found it, but there's some good evidence that they found it. And I will give you, at a time we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll give you some of the evidence. If you go back to the description of when Lot left Abraham and went towards Sodom, you don't go down towards the Dead Sea. You actually go over into the area of Jordan today and they found a city there that has been destroyed by fire. And um, I'll get into the information at another point. If you're interested in it, I'm trying to think of, um, if you're interested in it, Joel Rosenberg just did a, a program on his podcast where he interviewed the main uh, archaeologist who found it. So look up Joel Rosenberg, the discovery of, of Gomorrah, I think it is, um, or Sodom and Gomorrah, Joel Rosenberg. It's on his, um, I think it's his podcast is called Epicenter, I think. But anyway, uh, that's where you can find it if you're interested in it, all right? I'll give you more information a little bit later on, but it is pretty exciting that they found a city right where the Bible says that it was and that it was destroyed by fire and a very hot fire, by the way. And, and they'll, they'll get into that in the podcast if you're really interested in it. So, um, so Enoch is a Gentile and for that reason, and because of the, the, what the angels do or what these two witnesses do is nothing like Enoch, I have dismissed the possibility of it being Enoch and Elijah. Now, some believe it to be Moses and Elijah. And this is the way that I lean. When you, when you look at the uh, thumbnail on YouTube, uh, the mystery revealed is that it is Moses and Elijah but I'll have to say, this is the way in which I lean. And here's why. In Jude 1.9, it says, Yet Michael, the archangel, was contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring an accusation against him, a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, why would Michael, the archangel, and the devil be fighting over the body of Moses. What would be the, the reason for that? Now, there are a, a few reasons, I believe, that the two witnesses are most likely Moses and Elijah. I like that I wrote in my notes, most likely. I'm glad I did that. Uh, they, did, uh, they did the same miracles that Moses and Elijah did. They're gonna turn water into blood. They're gonna call down plagues just like Moses did. They're gonna call fire or they're gonna breathe fire. I kind of take it that they call fire and fire consumes them. I don't know if they were like a fire breathing dragon or not. I've seen pictures of the two witnesses that are like that and they're burning people up with fire shooting out of their mouths. I don't know that that's what it is, but that they call fire and because it's cutting, you know, they're calling for fire like Elijah did. Remember they came to arrest Elijah and Elijah said, I'm not going with you. And he called fire down from heaven and consumed them. And he did it to the second guy as well. Then the third guy came to arrest him. And the third guy said, I, you know what? I'm a family man. And so Elijah said, all right, I'll go with you. Read the story. It's what it, that's what happens. So um, they did the same miracles as they did. Moses turned water into blood and did all kinds of plagues in Egypt. Elijah was taken alive into heaven. So there was no reason to contend for his body because he was still alive. 
and Michael and Satan contend over the body of Moses. Now, maybe when you think about Moses, you're thinking about Hebrews 9.27, which says, it is appointed as it is appointed for men to die once, but after that judgment. And it, if that were a fast rule, that would definitely rule out Moses from being one of these two guys. However, there are exceptions to that. It's a rule. It's appointed once to man to die and then comes judgment. And out of all the billions of people that have happened on the earth to the vast majority of that's the case. But then we've got, we've got Jesus raising up um, from the dead, Lazarus from the dead. I wanted to start it with a Z. I don't know why. Lazarus from the dead, the young girl from the dead. Those people both die twice, right? It's been appointed for one man to die once. Those people all died twice. And so there are exceptions to it. So there's no reason that Moses could not be an exception to coming back to life and dying again, just like it was um, with these other, other people that are there. Now, Jesus met with Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop, mountaintop of transfiguration. And Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets. And Elijah is considered to be one of the greatest prophets. And Moses is the one who gave the law. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. When Jesus was walking with the two disciples on the Emmaus road, it says that he told them everything that was written about him in the law and the prophets. And so now you have these two witnesses that do what Moses and Elijah did. And it seems to be a witness or a testimony from the law and the prophets. Now, it is also, we're also told that Elijah would come again. We're told in the Old Testament that Elijah is going to come before the great and powerful day of the Lord. And we're also told that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But he wasn't Elijah. But he was Elijah. Jesus said this in Matthew 17, 10 through 11. And the disciples asked him saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. He said in another place, if you can handle it, John the Baptist is Elijah, but Elijah is going to return first and restore all things. So before Jesus comes back, Elijah is going to come. Now, when you're studying the book of Revelation, where is the best place to plug Elijah in? Because we're not told that Elijah ever showed up, that this was Elijah, where's the best place to plug him in? It would seem to be that it is one of these two witnesses uh, that show up. Now, there's another theory that's out there. Might as well tell you all the theories, right? There's another theory that's out there that these were just two people that God called and empowered with the power of Moses and Elijah to represent the law and the prophets. As I said, I lean towards it being Moses and Elijah. Elijah, if you're watching this because the mystery is going to be revealed, that was the mystery that was going to be revealed that now is a leaning towards. And if you don't understand what I'm saying, go back and watch the beginning of the study, all right? Now, it says of these two guys, uh, his two witnesses, that they will prophesy 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. And there's no reason to take it any other way than three and a half years. Because some, one, sometimes it says 42 months. Sometimes it says three and a half years. Sometimes it says uh, 360 days. Sometimes it says, you know, half of the, the, uh, of the 70th week. So there's different ways of saying it. 
And I don't think that we want to begin to allegorize things that are pretty clear. We have a seven-year period here. These guys are here for it. I think it would be in the middle of the tribulation period that these guys would show up because things are getting worse. The temple now, there's the abomination of desolation. They, they stop rain for three and a half years. So there's no rain on the earth during that time. I, I'm, I'm now second guessing everything that I'm thinking. I'm thinking, is there rain in the second half in the rest of the book of, of Revelation? I'm not sure if there is. Um, I don't think there is. So um, for three and a half years, they do what they do and no one could kill them. They try to arrest them. They try to kill them and they cannot have authority over them at all. It again reminds us of Elijah that Ahab would have loved to have found Elijah and arrested him, but could not find him and arrest him. And these guys are in the holy city. Now they're clothed in sackcloth. Many of the prophets wore sackcloth. Sackcloth is what you put on when you were mourning. We're told that Job put on sackcloth when he had boils and sat in ashes and scratched his boils with, pot with pottery, which sounds pretty miserable. Job was pretty miserable at that particular point in time. There's other places that we're told that they put on sackcloth. So these guys were clothed in sackcloth, which is, I liken it to a burlap bag. You go and you buy a big bag of, I don't know, potatoes, and that's, that's what you would wear. Not, not very comfortable, but that's not the idea. The idea that is that these guys are telling the truth, and people need to hear the truth, and the truth is uncomfortable. That's why the prophets wore burlap. Maybe we as preachers ought to wear burlap, burlap a little more often and tell people what the truth is and not try to tell people what they want to hear because that would be the real, true, loving thing to do. So in verse four, it says, they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, let me read you Zechariah four, two through three. And if anyone wants to harm them, Nope, excuse me. Let me read Zechariah 4 to you, 2 through 3. And he said to them, what do you see? And I said, I am looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it and the, uh, and the stand and on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes and seven lamps. So it's a candelabra like a menorah. And it says, Two, with the two olive trees are by it, one at the right and the other one at the left. And if you go on to read, it takes oil and it automatically pours it into the bowls so that it is lit forever. So there's a connection to the oil forever. And if you're reading Zechariah, it goes on to say, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the idea is that we are constantly lit by him, by the power of the spirit that comes automatically into our lives. That's the idea. And so connected here to the two lampstands. Now, because lampstands earlier in the book of Revelation were the churches, the seven lampstands were the seven churches and Jesus was walking in the midst of the seven churches, there are those that believe that these two witnesses are the church. Again, just because there's a lampstand one place and represents one thing, doesn't mean all lampstands everywhere represent the same thing. I'm not saying you ignore it. It's good to look at other things that say where the lampstands are brought up, 
but it doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean it's the church. And I don't believe it represents the church at all. I think it represents these guys being anointed by the Holy Spirit to do the work that God called them to do. I think they're evangelists as well. And that people are getting saved out of the tribulation period because of the work of these two witnesses. And then it goes on to say, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth, which is, it says directly, and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he, he must be killed in this manner. So these guys are roasting people. That, that's, we're supposed to love our enemies, bless those who curse us. I don't think that we could say this is the church, not unless the church has gotten new guidelines within the midst of the tribulation period. I'm supposed to, you know, uh, do good to our enemies. Roasting them with fire out of your mouth is not doing good. I can't see how this would fit in to, to be in the church, but this is these two witnesses during the tribulation period. And if anybody wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth and devours them. And they must die in this manner. They have the power to shut the heavens so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn the water to blood. So not only did water become rare because it wasn't raining, but now they could touch water in a pool and turn it into blood, which of course is what Moses was commanded to do. And to strike the earth with all plagues, which is of course what Moses did, as they desire. Now they are supernaturally protected and they cause this great tumult on the earth. And these men are hated. I think that the church, the hatred towards the church today, especially the, the fundamental church, there's hatred growing. And I say fundamental kind of hesitantly because I realize that there's problems with being fundamental in anything. When you get so extreme in any area, you can have problems. And there are those within fundamental Christianity that have become so extreme in certain areas that it has created problems. But I think you can never love Jesus too much. You can never give your life to Christ too much. You can never live for him too much. It doesn't mean that you have to be a, a, a radical fundamentalist in the terms that you would take things that are biblical, not biblical, and apply them and try to, to go to the extreme. It means you live for Christ with everything that you have completely. These disciples certainly are doing that. They're not only telling the truth, they're causing life on earth to be miserable and people hate them. It says in verse seven, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. Now, again, if you're just trying to look at what's said here, so people will say, well, that's the Antichrist. Well, the Antichrist is the beast that comes out of the sea, if I'm remembering correctly. The false prophet is a beast that comes out of the, the land. And the beast that came out of the bottomless pit, which maybe the Antichrist came from there, was Apollyon, right? The, the star fell from heaven, was given a key to open up the pit. The, the, the locust scorpion things came out and attacked men for five months. And they had a, a ruler, a king, who was a demon that lived in the pit that came out of the pit as well, who was called abandoned, um, abandoned or Apollyon. So this would be Apollyon, if that's the point. It says overcame them and killed them. So they were overcome and they were killed. Three and a half years. 
and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, he had to throw in that last part because we are so fond of Jerusalem today. When we visit Jerusalem, it's an exciting thing to see. But Jerusalem will become overrun by the Gentiles during the tribulation period, they will be going to worship the, the, the Antichrist in the temple, the newly rebuilt temple, and the city itself will become known as Sodom and Egypt. Now, Egypt in the Bible is a type of the world. So it is worldly. Sodom in the Bible is a type of, of sin. The reason that God says that he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was they had become so wealthy their lives were lavish and they didn't care for the poor. They were just living in their wealth and not caring for the, the poor. And this city is said to be worldly and has become so lavish that people are living in it and not caring for the poor, comparing it to Sodom. And I wonder how much of the world could be connected to that. And in their lavish living, now there's more and more time to do things that you want to pursue that may or may not be sinful and homosexuality, which is connected to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't think it's, I don't think in these last days, in the days that we're living, that finding a city where it said the city would be and the city was destroyed by fire and one of the main things there was homosexuality. No wonder this has been this has been on the front page of certain journals, but it was never picked up by the main media. There were certain main media aspects that found it, but they, they never picked it up and carried it. Why, why wouldn't our world today want to have on the front page of the New York Times, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah found destroyed by fire? Why wouldn't they want to have that headline today? Can you see why they might want to be hiding that particular thing? And that in the day that we're living before Christ comes back with all that's going on in our world today, that the discovery of the city of Gomorrah might be something that they want to hide away. So this is why he had to throw in it was where our Lord was crucified. Now, remember, Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. The, there, the temple there will be used to some degree during the millennium period. So there will be some redemption of this temple, but this temple will one day be destroyed and there will be a new Jerusalem and a new heaven. We're going to get that when we get further in the book of Revelation. Uh, it goes on to say then, verse nine, then from those peoples, tribes, nations, let me read that from the beginning again. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies for three and a half days. So they don't bury them. They kill them and they leave their dead bodies out. This is something that happens in the Middle East. Oftentimes they'll kill people, drag their bodies around. We've seen that in the news when Americans have been killed in the Middle East and their bodies have been drug around or just been left out. It's like a disgraceful thing for them to do to leave the bodies this way. And it says that not only did they leave their bodies out for three and a half days, it says, and did not allow the bodies to be put in graves 
and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwelt on the earth. Do you know that on 9-11, again, there were parties in certain cities around the world? They gave gifts, they handed out candy to the kids and they celebrated the destruction of those two towers and the 2,000, how many ever people? that were killed, some of them jumping to their death, some of them choosing to jump and die rather than to be burned by the fire. And when there's a terrorist act in Israel, there are places where people rejoice and give gifts to one another. This is a picture of man destroying another person and then rejoicing and partying and giving out gifts. And, there, and it happens in our world today. Because these two prophets that tormented the world uh, who, dwell, who dwell on the earth, it says now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life of God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And I imagine so. Three and a half days is interesting to me. I can't find a connection. Maybe that's a, kind of a mystery you could think through. We have three and a half years, but three and a half days. Jesus was in the grave for three days. We have three and a half days. These guys come back to life. Everybody's terrified. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. This is what we heard in Revelation chapter four, verse one, where I believe the rapture of the church, the resurrection and the rapture of the church are in chapter four, when, when there's a door open in heaven and a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. And the next thing you see is the heavenly scene. With, with every, trub, uh, every tongue, tribe, and nation, that's what Shromung is, which I said, is before the throne of God. And a loud voice saying, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. Now, I think that we're right at the end. I think that they are killed at the very end of the tribulation period. They, we've gone through everything. The Antichrist is about to be destroyed by Christ himself. There is a battle that goes on around Jerusalem. And we'll get more into this as we get into the book of Revelation. But Daniel chapter 11 talks about these events that lead up to the, the return of Christ. And there's a battle going on where the righteous are battling the unrighteous. And it seems that, the, that there were those who fought with these two witnesses. Now, verse 13 says, in that same hour, there was a great earthquake. They're suddenly, they're rejoicing and they're giving gifts to one another. Came to a pretty quick stop with the resurrection of these two witnesses. And then a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell in the earthquake and 7,000 people were killed. The, the word for people here is an interesting word. Because 7,000 people is not that many people. It wasn't studying the book of Revelation. We're talking in hundreds of millions and billions dying. So 7,000. The word for people here is another interesting word. It's got a, a, a connection to known people. That they're there in Jerusalem. Maybe a lot of the VIPs came out. And they're rejoicing in Jerusalem. And then there's a resurrection. And with this resurrection comes an earthquake. Which, by the way, what does that remind you of? What does an earthquake at a resurrection remind you of? It says in Matthew that Jesus died on the cross 
and there was an earthquake and some rocks split open. And after the resurrection, there were people that were seen walking around. They weren't seen walking around until after the resurrection. But when Jesus died on the cross, there was an earthquake in Jerusalem. And now in Jerusalem, there's an earthquake and 7,000, I'm going to say notable people die, are killed during this earthquake. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. So here it comes to the very end that they finally realize these guys have been preaching Christ. They belong to him. They've been, they've been preaching Christ for three and a half years. Now they've been resurrected. Then it says this. This is the second woe. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Things are happening quickly. Now, remember, this is parenthetical. It's an interlude in the, the account. We're getting information that we need for the future. So when we get back into the sounding of the trumpets and the pouring out of the bowls, we are not necessarily at the very end. There's still a lot to go before we get there. But we have these three different visions, the angel that gives the small book, the measuring of the temple, and finally the two witnesses who would, who would testify for three and a half years and then be killed and then be resurrected. And now when we get back into it next week, which will be verse 14 of chapter 11, we're going to see the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And it's a pretty great thing. And, and we'll take a look at it as, uh, as we do next week. Three things in closing. God will always have a witness. There will always be those, a remnant, those who are his. And a witness could be a martyr as well. And we are called to lay down our lives. Number two, well, that was my second point. We are called uh, as a witness or a martyr to lay down our lives. That we get, we're giving our lives to him now. We're dying to ourselves to live for Christ is what the Bible says. And number three, be careful not to allegorize the Bible too much. It's obvious when there's allegories, but when you allegorize the Bible too much, you, you increase the possibilities of being able to make mistakes. When you say this doesn't represent this, but it represents something else, you increase making mistakes. It's not that there are no allegories, because there are. And we should allegorize when, when it's obvious to do it. But if we don't have to, the general rule in Bible study is don't allegorize something that makes sense. There's, there's a rule in, in hermeneutics, which is the study of the Bible, that if the first sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. If the first sense makes sense, then it's good. There you go. If it doesn't make sense, then you got to go, eh, I'm not quite sure exactly what this means. All right, stand with me. Let's pray together. Let's ask God to... Uh, so help us to remember the things from this study. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is rich and deep and powerful. It works within us. Thank you that as we learn more from your word, we can get clarity on what we already know. Like wondering who the mighty angel is on chapter 10 and then seeing the mighty angel say, these are my two witnesses and how we can learn as we continue to study your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us as we pour in to find the truth of what the word of God says. And Lord, we also pray that you would help us to be witnesses for you, martyrs for you, lay down our lives for you. We're, we want to live for you. We're not asking you to come into our lives that you can make our lives better. We're asking you to use our lives and, and do what you want to do through us. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. 
Amen.